Hey guys, it's Miss Cushing. Today we're going to uh, continue pretty much with what we were talking about in our last notes day. So we were doing the French Revolution. We uh, talked about how the French people uh, revolted against the French monarchy. Um, eventually the monarchy was overthrown. Um, and the king and queen of France were executed as well. Uh, there was the reign of terror in which like upwards of 40,000 to even maybe 100,000 people were executed for um, crimes against the uh, Republic of France. Um, and then eventually the head of the reign of terror, uh, Maximilien Robespierre himself, was executed as well. Um, and as a result, uh, the major parts of the French Revolution were over. For about the next five years or so, you have what is called the Directory, which is basically, I think it's 12 individuals, uh, maybe it's less than that, who would rule over the rest of France um, and basically make decisions. Um, they're pretty ineffective, but they're also not Robespierre who's going around executing people. Um, so all things considered, we're not going to talk about the Directory that much. We are, however, going to talk about one of the major figures in both the 18th as well as the 19th century. It's one of my personal favorites. Um, when I was on vacation a couple years ago in uh, Europe with my best friend who lived in the Netherlands, she and I, on January 18th, uh, 2016 decided we absolutely had to spend the 201st anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo at Waterloo because that was where Napoleon was finally defeated on ja June 18th, 19, I'm sorry, ugh, June 18th, 1815, so exactly 201 years before. Um, so Napoleon is who we're going to be talking about today. We were also wearing like Napoleon shirts and like totally fangirling the whole time because that's the type of people we are. Um, we're going to be discussing the Napoleon. We're going to discuss the Napoleonic Wars, which were the series of wars that he entered in on behalf of uh, the French Empire, generally against Britain, as well as the allies of Britain, who tended to change uh, depending upon the different wars. Um, the Napoleonic Wars we're going to see are in the plural. There are going to be wars fought in Russia. There are going to be wars fought in Spain. Um, the War of 1812, which we talked about last year, you might remember that um, the British burned down Washington and the White House. Uh, that was an event that takes place under this blanket of the Napoleonic Wars, and we're going to see later on why that is uh, connected with these world affairs. But today's lesson, uh, which uh, is also going to be your lesson for um, Thursday, is going to be based on the Napoleonic Wars. So you can divide this up as you wish. I'm probably going to be dividing it up into, if I had to take a guess, three or four parts. Um, though I'm going to probably divide them up into parts that are roughly like 15 to 20 minutes or so. So let's go on to slide number two. 
So the first slide is our title slide. Slide number two is titled Napoleon Bonaparte. And you have a nice picture of Napoleon as a younger man on this slide. What a dashing fellow. Look at that outfit he's wearing. It's like that fancy belt. So exciting. Napoleon. Uh, his full name is Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, he is uh, not actually born in mainland France. He is born in an island off the coast of the south of France uh, that was previously a possession of Italy. Um, this island is called Corsica, and to this day it is, has Italian flair to it. However, it is still a part of France. Um, and Napoleon is Corsican. Um, he speaks Corsican as well as Italian as his first languages. He picks up French as well um, because they now rule the island um, as of 1769. Um, and uh, that being said, he speaks French with an accent. Uh, so if you can imagine a French person that comes here and speaks English with a French accent, that's how Napoleon sounds to French people. He's decidedly uh, kind of a foreigner, even though he eventually is going to wind up being the most powerful person in the country. His father was an important person on the island. He was the court representative of Corsica. So he would go to Versailles and represent the needs of the Corsican people at the court in front of the king. Um, and in the same year that, uh, that Corsica became part of France, Napoleon was born, 1769. So in 1789, when uh, the French Revolution began, he was about 20 years old and he was studying at a French military academy. Um, this... Uh, French Military Academy was in Paris. While there, he specialized as an artillery officer, so dealing with weaponry, mostly. Uh, keep in mind, he's an officer, so he is going to be higher up the ranks. Uh, even as he's entering, you generally buy commissions as uh, officers, rather than um, starting off kind of as like a foot soldier. And he's admitted to the French Military Academy in 1784. Um, he makes a name for himself while in the military. He's very eager uh, in the military. He wholeheartedly embraces the revolution when it comes about. So in 1789, he tends to more favor the Jacobin position. However, he doesn't like the extremely radical positions that the Jacobins are taking, such as uh, the Reign of Terror, for instance. He does not like that. And he sees these events that are taking place during the Revolution, where the Reign of Terror is happening and thousands upon thousands of people are being executed. And it's really not even sure if they're being executed for any real reason. He sees this as bad. And so when he eventually is going to uh, become a ruler, he is going to become a ruler based upon the positions that he is bringing order back to the French people. He doesn't necessarily care about liberty and personal, um, your, your personal beliefs and everyone's personal liberties. His big thing is going to be order, is going to be bringing uh, prosperity back to the people, um, and is going to be bringing security back to the people. He wants the people to be protected. And if that means you, maybe some people are not going to have the right to vote, i.e. women, then so be it. That's not as important as security. Let's go on to slide number three. 
Um, during the French Revolution, uh, he became famous in 1795 when there was what we call a royalist insurrection. So basically people who wanted uh, the king to come back, not Louis XVI because he's dead, um, but maybe like his brother or like his cousin or something like that. Uh, basically those types of people uh, tried to fight against the government. They rebelled against the government in 1795 and Napoleon uh, led troops into battle, uh, finished off that insurrection, um, and he later on said he did so with a whiff of grape shot, which is a type of um, bullet at this particular point. So he uses his artillery um, background in order to end this rebellion on his own, basically. The directory, who is the government at this time, um, discovers that Napoleon is very popular amongst the people. His abilities to end this particular um, uh, insurrection, this rebellion, uh, has made him extremely popular amongst the people, and so they use his popularity basically for their own benefit. Um, they would send Napoleon to different places so that um, he can kind of show off how important he is for the revolution, um, and then hopefully they as the directory and as the government can get some of that popularity um, because he is becoming popular representing them. With the blessing of the uh, government, uh, Napoleon goes to Egypt. He hopes to disrupt British trade in India, so he wants to use Egypt, which if you remember on a map is in the northeastern part of Africa. Um, so he wants to use Egypt as a base to disrupt British trade with India, because Britain has been a thorn in the French side throughout the entire revolution. Um, it's complete and utter disaster. Uh, the British completely destroy Napoleon's like armies in Egypt. They're kind of sent back to France with their uh, tails between their legs. Um, however, they find, for instance, the Rosetta Stone while they're there. They take a lot of other French artifacts while they're there. Um, and the study of Egyptology, so the studying of Egypt, actually becomes popular in this period because Napoleon went there and uh, even though he, it was a disaster of a campaign, uh, he brings back all this really interesting stuff, all these artifacts that uh, makes the study of ancient Egypt uh, in vogue. And you can see a painting right here of Napoleon in front of the Sphinx. If we go on to slide number four, while uh, he was in Egypt and not doing great um, in terms of at least, you know, the military. France uh, lost a series of battles against Britain, which were called the War of the Second Coalition. Napoleon uh, returned to France. He managed to actually keep under wraps the Egyptian campaign pretty well, so he kind of intimidated the press. Um, and had a network of spies that made sure that word of his bad campaign didn't really get out. And so Napoleon still comes back to France and he still has this kind of uh, shine to him. Whereas the government, which had lost the War of the Second Coalition, most certainly does not have the same shine. Um, and as a result, within three months of returning to France, nobody knows that the Egypt campaign is a disaster. Um, Napoleon basically walks into the government on November 9th, 
1799. Uh, if you remember, they had renamed the months. So in this new calendar that they had, it was called the 18th of Brumaire. Um, but Napoleon returns to France, uh, walks into the government November 9th, 1799, and he overthrows the government. He names himself uh, the first consul. He uh, adopts a new system called the consulate, the consulat. Um, where basically it's him and a couple other people who are running the go uh, government. They're supposed to hold these positions for 10 years. He is the first consul, so he's the most important amongst this uh, consulate of individuals. Um, and then ultimately, within a couple years, uh, by 1802, he had named himself consul for life. So this whole, like, elected every 10 years thing that's thrown out the window, he's basically running the show. If you recall, this is actually kind of similar to the way Augustus, back in the Roman Empire, was able to declare himself uh, consul as well, first consul, the emperor, um, princeps, first citizen. He, Napoleon's able to do this kind of, he's a bit more forceful than Augustus, but he does this uh, every step of the way um, for the good of the French people. Um, in addition, we're going to see as well that he holds elections, um, but he intimidates people into voting for him in these elections. So he's going to get like 99% of the vote. Do you want Napoleon to be first consul for life? And he gets 99% of the vote. Now you might say, oh, well, that just means he's really popular. Um, a political scientist would say, no, not everyone is either voting or they're changing people's votes or people are too afraid to go and vote against him. So basically what he's establishing is a dictatorship. And this is how dictatorships tend to uh, go into place. Dictatorships usually don't occur where people just overthrow the government and suddenly uh, they start slaughtering people and everyone's very outward about how bad they are. Usually dictatorships kind of like sneak in the back door. They try and make it seem like they're doing things in a democratic way. And so when suddenly your entire country is being ruled by one person and you're just like, wow, how did this happen? It's kind of a bit of a shock to people. So Napoleon's basically, he's first consul for life. He's the dictator. Um, he continues to further France's ambitions militarily. Uh, he and his troops cross over the Alps. Uh, they won the War of the Second Coalition. They took parts of northern France, I'm sorry, Italy. Uh, they took the Austrian Empire. Um, they basically are starting to take over all of uh, Europe or all of Western Europe at this point. And they're going to continue it to take over different parts of the continent as well. So they're not just going to stop. He's going to want to take over as much as he could possibly take over. He wants to build himself an empire the size of the Roman Empire, the size of Charlemagne's empire, as we saw before. Let's go to slide number five. Um, he was holding elections every step of the way. So do you want Napoleon to be consul for life? Do you think there should be a consulate? So on and so forth. And he's winning every single one of these elections by a very unlikely margin. Um, and then ultimately, he's going to hold another election, basically a do you think Napoleon should be Emperor of France election? And he wins this election with 99% of the vote, once again, 
probably not a legitimate election. Probably not. The UN probably would not think that this actually is what 99% of French people want. Um, but he wins the vote, and on December 2nd, 1804, Napoleon is crowned uh, Emperor of France. Uh, his wife, Josephine, who you see here in this picture, he is crowning her the Empress of France. kind of want two dogs. I'm going to name them Napoleon and Josephine. Isn't that a cute little name? Um, to go along with my Clovis, if you recall, from the Middle Ages class. The... Pope was actually invited to the coronation, and the Pope, who you can actually see in the image, he's kind of behind Napoleon. Um, the Pope was actually supposed to crown Napoleon Emperor of France, kind of like how the Pope crowned Charlemagne, the uh, Roman Emperor, for instance. Um, but at last second, uh, as the Pope is about to place the crown on Napoleon's head, Napoleon takes it out of his hands and places it on his own head. The implication of this being that uh, he owes the throne to no one but himself. The Pope is not making him uh, the emperor. He made himself the emperor. Let's go into slide number six. So this uh, event takes place in 1804, the end of 1804. Um, and from this point... Uh, for the good of France, of course, Napoleon sets out to further expand French influence and to further conquer France's enemies. You'll need to remember that throughout the French Revolution, um, the enemies of France are constantly trying to attack France or to plot to attack France. Um, and so while the French Revolution is taking place, there is this fear that the revolution is going to stop because Austria might attack France and take over. Uh, Britain might. The reason being, of course, that the French Revolution was very destabilizing to the rest of Europe, um, but also because these countries are all monarchies and they're afraid that if France uh, continues to be a uh, republic without a monarchy, they had killed their monarchs, then this might happen in Britain and Austria, for instance, or this might happen in Spain. And so all these countries kind of ally against France uh, together. And so France kind of is trying to conquer its enemies, it's trying to expand its influence, it's also trying to get payback and also make itself stable. So people stop attacking them, for instance, they're going to be um, a safer country. Napoleon is extremely popular at this point. Uh, people really buy into his position that he wants France to be um, uh, an orderly place. He wants it to be a secure place. He wants it to be an efficient place, even if that means they're not going to have that liberty, equality, and fraternity that the revolution had been preaching. So they're trading in some of their rights, but they're getting safety in return. And the French people, after a decade of uh, revolution and terror and being afraid that they're going to be executed at any moment for a crime they didn't commit or something that wasn't even a crime 10 years ago, uh, these people really back Napoleon. They are all for what he's trying to do, and he's extremely popular in the country. Uh, they sincerely believed, person quotes, um, that uh, Bonaparte, whether he was consul or he was emperor, would exert his authority and save them from the perils of anarchy. 
he tries to further his reputation on the battlefield as well. So from 1804 to 1812, uh, he tries to... Uh, make the greatest army that Europe has ever seen and take on all these powers that had previously been against France. Um, he is always at the battlefield with his troops. So a lot of times you'll see generals kind of stay in the back and just like tell people what to do. Napoleon is always able to be seen at the battle. Um, and this usually is going to be kind of it boosts troop morale because when you don't see your generals, it makes it seem like, oh, this is a bad situation. I need to get away. But because Napoleon is always visible, uh, people will stay to fight. It's also just kind of a we need to do it for the fatherland. We need to do it for the emperor type of situation. They see he's there. He is with them. And so they want to help him. He always draws up new battle plans for every single battle. So he knows the terrain. He knows his enemies and who their generals are, what their plans might be. And he always composes a new battle before every, I'm sorry, a new battle plan before every single battle, which basically means that his enemies have no idea what he is going to do. I've mentioned how different battles throughout history, so the Battle of Cannae during uh, the Roman Empire and Hannibal, uh, Salamis in ancient Greece, um, Marathon. I mentioned quite a bit that these are battles that to this day you study if you go to like West Point. Napoleon real knows these battles as well. He studied them and he himself knows that he needs to make sure that he can outwit his enemies. And so he knows what their battle plans are going to be, uh, but they're not going to know what his battle plans are. And once again, uh, the battles in Napoleon fights to this day are still studied if you go to military academies because the strategies are so well done and they're so to uh, what the needs of that individual battle is. It's very clear that Napoleon is taking lots of things into account. He's not uh, cutting corners. He's making sure that the battle that he draws up for each battle fits the terrain that he is in, fits uh, the, uh, the troops that he is fighting against. Let's stop here for this particular point, um, and in our next recording, I'm going to actually go into looking at those battles um, and at those wars uh, that Napoleon uh, fights against his enemies. So Napoleon's now the emperor in uh, 1804, and he decides to continue expanding his and France's influence across Europe. Uh, we're on slide number seven right now. Um, Britain, who is the kind of chief enemy of France at this point, uh, is very fearful of Napoleon's rise to power. They're afraid that uh, by Napoleon becoming a thing, so to speak, um, that perhaps... Uh, the overthrow of the monarchy and of the aristocracy and of the British government and the British system um, might become something that they need to consider in their own land. Um, Austria, who's been beaten twice by Napoleon, uh, is also fearful of this. Um, so they get together, um, along with the country of Sweden, which is also a monarchy, um, and they sign uh, a treaty 
which is called the Treaty of the Third Coalition. Uh, this is a coalition of these three uh, countries uh, against France. Napoleon, to go against this particular treaty, uh, plans on invading Britain, um, which it, it doesn't actually happen. He doesn't wind up actually invading Britain. Um, that being said, he plans on this invasion, um, and the British need to kind of, uh, throughout the summer of 1805, they're worried that they're going to be attacked by Napoleon. Um, he tries to uh, lure the Royal Navy away from the English Channel. The Royal Navy had been kind of there protecting the island nation of Great Britain. Um, and he tries to kind of divert their attentions away from protecting the mainland. Um, and in doing so, uh, he um, tries to attack uh, British interests in Spain. Let's go on to... Um, slide number eight. Britain's navy, as we have mentioned, uh, I think quite a few times so far, could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure we've mentioned that Britain's navy is the greatest in the world at this point. Um, and it's going to continue to be the greatest in the world, really, until like World War I and even beyond then. Uh, the British Navy is important for a couple of reasons. If you have a strong navy, you can defend your interests economically. So whenever the British um, are going to their colonies, say you have a tea merchant that in 1770 would be going to Boston before the American Revolution, um, that tea merchant would probably have a British naval vessel accompany him across the Atlantic. They'd probably pay for the service, um, but they would be protected. Pirates couldn't take over the ship. The French couldn't take over the ship and kill all the sailors and then take all of the goods that they're trying to sell. Um, so the British Navy is able to defend economic interests of the British. Um, they're able to defend the island itself. Uh, they're able to defend their colonies. So by luring the British Navy away, um, Napoleon is hoping to divert their attention. On October 21st, 1805, uh, Napoleon's French Navy engages with the British Navy. Uh, the Navy in Britain is he uh, headed by an admiral by the name of Horatio Nelson, uh, one of the greatest heroes in British history. Um, I think he's like named like number three on the list of greatest Britons like ever. Um, he was on a ship called the HMS Victory. If you go to England to the city of Portsmouth, you can actually go on to his ship. I did that when I was a very little girl on a field trip. Um, in my school um, when we lived in England when I was like 10 or so. Um, and he's on the board the HMS Victory. He is watching over the proceedings of a battle called the Battle of Trafalgar. It's off the coast of Spain. Um, and the British, who are outnumbered, uh, they uh, beat the French um, in this battle. During the battle, Nelson himself is shot, um, but he... Before he dies, he states his most famous line, uh, England expects that every man will do his duty and his troops uh, continued to fight against these French people and they continued on their mission and ultimately they are going to win at the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, Trafalgar Square, one of the most famous uh, places to visit in London, is named after this battle. Um, and this really shows that even though France is taking over a lot of Europe, uh, the British are still going to continue to uh, try and stop them in doing so. And they also have the manpower to try and stop them as well. 
Let's go into slide number nine. Even though the British are clearly winning at the naval thing, uh, Napoleon is clearly winning at the army thing. The British don't really have a good army at this point. Um, they have one. It's not great. Their investment has very much been in their naval forces. Um, and so in 1805, uh, while the British have won the naval battle at Trafalgar, uh, Napoleon's French uh, have achieved victories um, across Europe. Uh, they defeat the coalition at the Battle of Ulm, at the Battle of Austerlitz. Uh, this is one of the greatest battles in history. So it's once again constantly studied. Um, the third coalition was defeated as a result of this battle. So even though the British had um, won at sea, um, the collapse of the rest of the coalition at Ulm and Austerlitz is going to be major in deciding the fate of the third coalition. Um, let's go on to slide number uh, 10. Napoleon now has taken over pretty much all of Central Europe. He has uh, reorganized the German states. He, uh, previously the German states had been headed by the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, if you remember when we talked about, uh, for instance, the medieval period and the Crusades, the Holy Roman Emperor went on crusade and he was the guy who drowned uh, crossing a river in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, so the Holy Roman Emperor was basically the person who controlled all of Germany in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. And up until Napoleon uh, took away the Holy Roman Emperor um, and basically was like, yeah, this doesn't exist anymore. And he reorganizes them into a confederacy called the Confederacy of the Rhine, uh, basically, which is going to be loyal to him. So he puts like puppets there and he basically tells them what to do and they control things. Um, the War of the Fourth Coalition is going to be, once again, Britain, um, Russia, uh, Prussia, which is, like, northeastern Germany, um, challenging the French, um, and once again being soundly beaten. Uh, the battles of Jena and Auerstedt um, are the most famous battles from this particular coalition. Uh, Napoleon... Um, defeats Russia when they march into Central Europe. Um, the Russians then decided it would be a good idea to make peace with Napoleon um, before France could actually try to attack Russia. Um, and so they do so. They make peace with Russia. They basically say if you... Um, Napoleon basically says to the Russian Tsar that if you assist me in kind of beating Britain, um, I will not attack you. And in fact, I will give you quite a lot of the territory in Central Europe that I have defeated. And the Russian Tsar takes him up on that. Let's go to slide number 11. Uh, with Russia helping in the east, Napoleon can now turn his eyes towards Spain. Uh, in 1808, Napoleon takes over Madrid, which is the capital of Spain, and he places his brother, uh, Joseph Bonaparte, on the Spanish throne as the king of Spain. He gets rid of the previous Habsburg king of Spain. Uh, the Spanish population uh, resists with the support of Portugal and Great Britain. 
um, and the Peninsular Wars start. Uh, the Spanish, as well as the British, uh, but mostly the Spanish, um, fight guerrilla warfare, um, which basically means that they kind of hide in bushes, and if you see a French troop walk by, then you start attacking them, but, like, from hidden, so that you can't be attacked. Um, so guerrilla warfare is kind of like, um, it's not warfare that involves getting into, like, lines on a battlefield and everyone can see everyone. You're hidden, um, you don't have probably as, as advanced, uh, tr like, weapons in guerrilla warfare, and so as a result you're kind of hiding yourself so that you don't get attacked, so you don't get stripped off. But you're attacking the major army, and the Spanish were greatly involved in doing this. Um, the British assisted the Spanish, um, the Duke of Wellington who was the major uh, general from Britain at this point. Um, he went to Spain and helped to fight in the Peninsular Wars, as they are called, because they are on the Spanish Peninsula. Um, and they really put an emphasis on this particular front in the Napoleonic Wars, um, because the Peninsular War, since it was fought guerrilla style, um, it's going to drain France of its energy, and it's going to drain France of its troops as well as money. It's basically just going to be a very expensive diversion that the British are hoping um, is going to come out of Spain. Um, on both sides, atrocities take place uh, in this war. So you see a picture here of French troops uh, basically going into a town at night, um, kidnapping all the men in that town and just shooting them. Um, I'd like you to look at the man who is kind of the focal point of this image. Where are your eyes drawn to? Most of you, I'm sure, are going to say the man who's wearing white. And if we were in class, I would ask you, what does his image remind you of? And if last year is any indication, eventually somebody is going to say he looks like Jesus. Because this artist, uh, Francisco Goya, uh, purposefully drew this man to kind of look like a sacrificial lamb who is sacrificing himself for everyone else. He's purposefully being drawn in this particular way. Um, so the citizenry in Spain, men, women, children, um, they were really uh, injured in this war. Uh, they fought, of course, against the French. Um, some might have fought against the British, uh, but the people who live in Spain really suffered under the Peninsular Wars, as you can imagine. Let's go to slide number 12. By 1812, Napoleon, um, who had made a deal with the Russians, uh, controlled most of Western Europe. So if you look on this map here, um, the land that he directly controls is in that dark blue. But then the land that he has basically all control of because somebody who is really close to him is actually running the show, whether it's his brother in Spain or whether it's like his sister in, in central Italy or something like that, um, that land is in the light blue. And then everything else is kind of like not shaded in. Uh, that's land that is still either up for grabs or is still being ruled by the person who it was originally ruled by. Um, in 10 years, he's basically run roughshod over Italy and Germany. He's taken over both of those countries. He's taken over Spain. Um, he's tried to take over Britain, but the Royal Navy has stopped them. 
Uh, the Royal Navy after Trafalgar, because it kind of had destroyed most of the French Navy, um, it starts blockading British, I'm sorry, French ports. So, for instance, it would go to, like, the port of uh, La Rochelle or of um, uh, Barfleur or something like that. And they basically would park their ships outside of the harbor. And if anybody, uh, whether it's a naval vessel or a merchant vessel, tries to leave, they take down the ship. So as a result, uh, for much of the Napoleonic Wars after 1805, French vessels are not able to leave France via, um, via sea. They, if they need to leave France, they have to kind of walk out with the army. They can't actually go via sea um, because the Royal Navy is blockading them. Uh, the Royal Navy, as well as the French Navy that had already left, um, they would stop ships that, were, um, that they were unsure of. Uh, the British would oftentimes stop American ships, and they would take American sailors and impress them into the British Navy. This was the cause of the War of 1812, um, and why the Americans fought against the British. Um, and once again, why the War of 1812 is kind of a theater in the Napoleonic Wars, because it's a result of uh, the Americans uh, basically being forced to get involved in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, Napoleon tried to respond to the British blockade by ending European trade with Britain, but Britain then took the rest of its navy and then blocked all the European ports. So it would block ports in like Amsterdam and in Hamburg um, and in Italy. And basically no one who is controlled by the French is trading anything anywhere and no naval vessels that are controlled by the French are getting out of their ports. Um, as a result, goods in Europe uh, become higher uh, in price because the trade for goods is going to not be as efficient as it should be. Um, and uh, Europeans who had already not liked Napoleon, think like Germans and Italians and Spanish, um, they have even more reason to dislike Napoleon uh, because the goods that they need are costing more for them to actually get. So this kind of economic trade war going on with Britain. Um, let's go to slide number 13. Napoleon gets tied up in Spain. Um, he has to do other things. So he does go and leave himself to go to Austria in 1809 to deal with a rebellion there. But his troops continue to do battle in Spain. So this really, um, where those troops could have gone elsewhere to re-kind of, um, organize Central Europe or to fight against Napoleon's enemies elsewhere, they're stuck in Spain. They can't leave um, because they're fighting the Duke of Wellington's armies. Um, the Duke of Wellington is this man you see here. Um, once again, it's guerrilla warfare, atrocities committed on both sides. Um, the French troops uh, we're going to see in 1812 are forced to... Um, uh, start leaving Spain. They kind of need to give Spain up for a loss, um, but they don't fully leave until 1814. So once again, Spain was very important to the British because if they continued forcing the French to attack them in Spain, um, then they can divert French attention from other things that the French might possibly decide to do. Let's go to slide 14. Um, one of the most important and really well-known chapters 
in the Napoleonic Wars is going to be when uh, Napoleon decides to invade Russia. Um, Tsar Alexander I in 1812 got tired of this um, blockade against the British, um, and so he openly starts to trade with the British again. He's kind of sick and tired of prices of things going up, um, so he starts to trade with the British. Napoleon doesn't like this, and so he decides that the deal with Russia is null and void. He's now going to attack the Russian heartland. His generals tell him that's a bad idea. Because what's one thing you know about Russian geography? Most likely, you, uh, ninth grade students, are aware that Russia is very, very big. You are also probably pretty aware that Russia is very, very cold. Um, as a result, uh, Napoleon's generals were right. He shouldn't have attacked Russia. That was not a very smart move. He got um, a large army, it's called the Grande Armée, um, together, and uh, they pulled troops, once again, this is 1812, they pulled troops out of Spain, they pulled troops out of Austria, and this huge army now um, decides to go and attack uh, Russia. He has about 600,000 people who were in this Grande Army, 50,000 horses. Um, the Russians do not actually want to attack this Grand Armée. They don't need to, in their opinion, and it's also just not a very smart move, because it is a big army. It's 600,000 people. So the Russians, uh, their strategy basically is um, to, every time the Grand Armée gets close to them, they burn everything in sight, all the villages, all the farms, everything, um, and then they retreat a couple, like, miles back. And then they just keep doing this. And then eventually, over the course of a large, unbearable Russian winter, Napoleon's supply lines are now stretching across half of Russia. Uh, maybe not half, but, like, a quarter of Russia. Um, all across Central Europe, back to France. And so these supply lines are hard to maintain. Uh, they don't have enough clothing for the people who are... Um, going through this harsh Ru Russian winter. They don't have enough food. Um, and so the Russians really don't even need to meet Napoleon's Grand Armée in battle because the winter is doing all of their work for them. Uh, men uh, are walking around, uh, some writers write like skeletons. Um, they don't have enough food to eat. They just kind of collapse on the trail uh, walking towards St. Petersburg and Moscow. Um, eventually, uh, the Grand Armée basically needs to retreat. Um, famine and winter, uh, rather than Russian bullets, have conquered and defeated the Grand Armée, uh, the general Michel Ney uh, said. Napoleon rushes uh, to Paris to raise new troops to defend France. Um, however, the Russian campaign is basically done. If you've ever heard the song, the 1812 Overture, they tend to play it on the 4th of July. Um, it's a good song, it's catchy, so you've probably actually heard it for that reason. Um, it actually has nothing to do with the 4th of July. It has nothing to do with our War of 1812. Um, it is written uh, like in 1878 or something like that, maybe 1876, um, by uh, Tchaikovsky. Um, and it is a song commemorating 
the anniversary of uh, this invasion of Russia and how the Russian people were able to, um, through grit and through sacrifice, destroy Napoleon's armies. I'm going to try and put it into this podcast a little bit. I doubt I'll be able to actually do that because I don't think I actually have the skills, but I'll put a link of it in the box that you can listen to. So after the uh, aborted invasion of Russia, which severely uh, depleted the French army, um, as well as kind of was a major disaster and embarrassment for Napoleon politically, um, the Sixth Coalition was organized. Um, So this is going to be all of the people who hate Napoleon, which is basically everyone. Uh, Russia, Prussia, Austria, Sweden, Russia, again, I don't know why I have Russia twice on this list, Uh, Great Britain, Spain, uh, Portugal, all of these people um, decided to ally against Napoleon um, to combine all of their forces, all of their armies, all of their navies to finally defeating uh, this guy. At the Battle of Leipzig um, in 1814, 90,000 people died when you take into account both sides of the people who fought this battle. Um, It's the largest battle of the Napoleonic Wars, and Napoleon is defeated. He is finally kind of kicked off the throne. Uh, After the battle, the coalition invades France in 1814, um, and Napoleon is forced to Um, not only step down as emperor, but also to go into exile. Let's go into slide 16. Um, He abdicates the throne, and he goes into exile off the coast of Tuscany on an island called Elba. Um, And they allow him basically to, like, kind of live the life he's accustomed to on Elba, so he's, like, pretty comfortable. Um, you can see Italy from Elba, so it's really very close to the coast of Tuscany. It's not far off at all. They let him, like, have his own little tiny private army and navy that he can kind of march around the island. Um, he gets down to business and controlling his new territory, Um, He develops iron mines that are on the island. He oversees the construction of new roads. He issues decrees on agriculture. He overhauls the island's legal and education system. Um, So he gets down to business doing the thing he's used to doing, which is ruling. Back in France, um, the brother of Louis XVI, uh, Louis XVIII, because Louis XVI's little son was technically, for a couple months, the King of France. Um, Louis XVIII is named King of France. He's not very popular. Um, he uh, There's an economic depression in France at the point where he takes over. Um, he kind of favors aristocrats over common people, whereas Napoleon had allowed anybody of any background to theoretically get any job within his government. Um, And so as a result, the French people are very loyal to Napoleon. Um, And as a result as well, uh, Napoleon manages to escape Elba with his little army and his navy 
Um, and he's met in France with open arms by the former troops who had supported him. Let's uh, go to slide 17. This is called the Hundred Days. So he's wel welcomed in open arms um, when he finally gets to France in March of 1815. Uh, and with 700 men, he manages to retake over the country. Um, he meets the French army at the French border. He declares, here I am, kill your emperor if you wish. Um, but the troops who love Napoleon, uh, they put down their weapons and they join him as he continues marching across Europe. Uh, for a hundred days, he's emperor again. He sought to, sought to reconquer his empire. Let's go to slide 18. Um... If we were in class, it's at this point in the lecture, I would play an ABBA song for you called Waterloo. When my friends and I went to Waterloo uh, in 2016, we had this song playing on my iPod constantly, and all the people in Belgium were just like looking at us like, what are these people doing? Um, but it's a good song, so I'm going to put that in the box for you to listen to as well. Your parents might enjoy it as well. Um, but... Finally, June 18th, 1815, Napoleon's army uh, meets the War of the Seventh Coalition's armies um, at Waterloo, which is a tiny little town outside of um, uh, Brussels in Belgium. Um, the British army, actually, that night before had, or a couple nights before, had um, attended a ball, uh, or I say the British Army, but many of the officers um, had attended a ball at the house in Brussels of a woman named Lady Richmond. Um, and this was a very important gathering. Uh, halfway through the event, they got a message they needed to retreat to get to Waterloo because that was where the battle was presumably going to take place. And then suddenly at this ball, this like very joyous event turns into a very sad event as everyone has to leave and everyone's crying and uh, many of those famous people are going to wind up dying in battle. Um, Duke of Wellington, who we saw in uh, the, uh, the Peninsular War, he is going to lead um, the Seventh Coalition um, as well as the Prussian Prince of Wallstadt. Um, this is a very long battle. Um, it is... Uh, a very uh, important battle in world history. Um, so if we ever wind up taking a final, which I doubt is going to happen, but if we do, know the Battle of Waterloo, please. Um, it becomes almost legendary with its connection to Napoleon, because even though Napoleon comes with uh, this big army, um, and he basically everything is resting on this battle, um, he loses. Uh, and it permanently ends his ambitions to uh, taking kind of like the throne of all of Europe. Let's go to slide 19. After uh, this battle, they have the idea to send Napoleon back to an island. Um, the British in particular are very certain as to what island this is going to be. So I'd like you guys to please go onto your Apple Maps on your phones and look up where St. Helena is. And you're going to see that it is right smack in the middle of nowhere in the South Atlantic Ocean. It is 1,162 miles away from the west coast of Africa. Just for giggles last year, 
I went on Expedia and tried to find out how much time it would take me and how much money it would cost me if I wanted to go from Raleigh to St. Helena. And I think it was a couple days and it was definitely $15,000 for me to buy a plane ticket to get there. Uh, so the British picked a really good island. Um, basically, there's no way that this guy is going to be able to escape St. Helena. Once again, they even station a little military gar garrison on the island for him to command just so he can have something to do, quite frankly. Um, and at a neighboring island, Ascension Island, uh, they put another military garrison uh, that... Uh, would further ensure that Napoleon is not leaving St. Helena. And it is there on May 5th, 1821, uh, that Napoleon died. Some people say he's murdered. Um, his hair had high levels of arsenic uh, in the follicles. Uh, they were able to discover uh, like a century and a half later when they did some tests. Um, arsenic, however, was used in a lot of like paints um, and definitely in the house that he was living in at the time. Um, so it's possible that that arsenic just kind of came from the living situation he was in and that people didn't necessarily realize they were slowly poisoning him. Um, no one knows. But May 5th, 1821, the first emperor of France, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, sadly dies. And my heart sank a little bit as well because I love him. Let's go to our last slide, slide 20. Uh, between November of 1814 and June 1815, uh, the Congress of Vienna met. Um, so this is in between uh, that first defeat of Napoleon um, and after that second defeat of him. It's chaired by an Austrian prince, Clemens von Metternich. And the goal of this conference is to stabilize Europe. Um, so Napoleon had gotten rid of the Holy Roman Empire, and so now you had a bunch of German city-states. Um, he had destabilized Italy, destabilized Spain, and so basically what they need to do at this conference is find a framework for organizing people within Europe um, so that uh, peace rules over Europe. Um, basically, how is Europe just supposed to work? is, uh, if you look at this map here, uh, the Kingdom of Bavaria going to be its own place, or is it going to join up with other similar-speaking people, German-speaking people? Uh, what about Italy? Are all the Italian places, or places where people speak Italian and share a common culture, are they going to become one country? And the answer to both of those questions is no. Italy does not exist until much later on in the 19th century. Same thing with Germany. Uh, they're not going to exist until after the Franco-Prussian War. Um, and so the way that Europe is going to work, quote unquote, um, is going to be the same exact system uh, until it all blows up and turns out it didn't actually work at all uh, in 1914 uh, when World War I begins. We're gonna talk more about the Congress of Vienna. Um, two notes from now. Our next notes are going to be on the Industrial Revolution, which is going to be a major theme in this next unit. Um, and then the notes after that are going to be on the political situation in Europe in the 19th century, and ultimately how that is going to lead to things like World War I. I mentioned at the start of our previous notes um, that the French Revolution uh, is going to set the stage for everything that happens in the 19th century and even into the 20th century. 
I hope that especially with, you see how destabilizing it was, um, and how the French as well as Napoleon try to conquer everyone else, how this uh, destabilizes the entire continent and basically sets it up for a system that is going to uh, basically lead to World War One. I. I hope that becomes somewhat apparent, and especially when we actually talk about World War One and when we talk about our new um, our next politics notes, I hope that you guys really take that kind of out of it, how important this particular event is in the course of world history. There's a reason why we're not talking about the American Revolution. Partially, it's because you're going to talk about that next year and the year after, and you talked about it last year, let's talk about something else. Um, but also because the French Revolution just has a more important place in world history um, because of the way that... Um, it destabilizes the entire continent because of the way it reformats the entire political system across Europe. And it also, because of the way it makes uh, Britain become the most important country uh, and nation in the world. We're going to see all of that in this next unit, and we're also going to see that in the unit that comes after as well. I hope you guys um, have a good break. This is going to be your last assignment before we go to um, spring break. So finish these up, finish up these notes, um, make sure everything is done. And you guys are all set. We're going to have more to do on the other side of break. We're going to talk about the 19th century. We're going to talk about the 20th century. Um, but have a good one. Feel free to get, send me any emails if you have any questions or if you just want to chat and are bored. I'd be happy to respond to them.